This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Hello, and welcome everybody. Can you hear me in the back? Give me a little wave. Oh, I feel like I've been friended on Facebook. Thank you. Uh, today's panel is a discussion in connection with our One College, One Book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And today we're talking about the issue of social justice and current responsibility for past wrongs that we perceive. Um, there's a series of library materials on the subject of social justice to various aspects of it on display out there. All of those are for checkout. You can feel free to grab them if any of them interest you. Um, we've got a panel today who need no introduction except the rules are you introduce them. Okay, so very briefly, Mary Fafleese is Assistant Professor of History and Political Science here at Moraine. Ricky Cobb is Assistant Professor of Sociology here at Moraine. James McIntyre, instructor in history. Here at Moraine. All right. What have you heard? Exactly. Just what? I'm, well, I'm just checking. I'm checking. And Kevin Navatrill, assistant professor of political science. And please help me welcome him. Thanks. And Joel Balarkey, the bus librarian. Okay, so I guess I'm starting. Okay. Good afternoon, everybody. Can you all hear me? I've got a big mouth, so it shouldn't be, shouldn't be too difficult. Um, so uh, we're very excited to be here with you this afternoon to talk about this topic. And uh, we have a few questions that we're going to start off by with the panel. Each person will address it on the panel. And uh, in terms of questions, shall we take it maybe, uh, if there's a question that's pressing that you want to ask right then and there, are we okay with if we take them or yeah. do you want to take them at the end? So yeah, you can feel free to raise your hand at any point in time and ask a question. Um, we're pretty nice people. We won't yell at you or anything like that. We'll try not to. So yeah, so the first question, that didn't go over too well. First question uh, is actually, how do we make peace uh, with the past? And what are the limits? What are those limits in terms of making peace? So we'll kind of start with a general uh, um, answer there. Any of you want to start it off? <laughs> I think I'll start off by uh, answering the question in the most vague way possible. <laughs> I, I really think it depends upon what the, uh, if, if, it, if you're just saying past, what was the event of the past? Who were the perpetrators? Who were the, uh, you know, people being hurt? How long ago did this occur? You know, we were in our meetings discussing amongst ourselves how we would, re you know, what our views are on reparations or how, how we would, uh, you know, uh, compensate people for past wrongs. And I really think it depends upon the situation, it, you know, uh, especially if you could per uh, possibly get the, the perpetrators who were actually involved in the, in the situation. So I think for now I'm going to keep it vague and say uh, it depends and um, try to answer it a little bit more specifically when we pick particular events. I, I guess I'd build on that response by saying I think you also have to establish what happened um, particularly before you can make peace with what happened. Now, as a historian, there's, there's different takes, there are different interpretations on any event that occurs in the past. And I think that also leads into the whole idea of the truth and reconciliation panels that have been used in a number of African states as well as Cambodia 
to establish what the truth of a, of a tragic event or of a painful event in the past was, and, and only then I think can you move forward and find or begin to find some kind of social justice. To you, sir. Um, you know, I would just say that you know there's a difference between feelings and remedy. And certainly, you know, in social situations or even in our personal lives, when we feel that we've been treated unfairly or we know that we've been treated unfairly or that we're grieved, um, there's a powerful feeling that we have for justice. And that can be a very good thing. That's a, that's a normal impulse, a natural impulse, and a lot of social change has been the product of those sentiments. However, there is the practical issue of what remedy can be achieved, at what cost, uh, who ultimately is going to be deemed responsible and how are they going to be asked to reconcile uh, with the uh, past uh, wrongs that have happened. So I think that the, the feeling uh, that there should be uh, fairness, justice, that past wrongs should be righted is a, is, is a noble feeling. However, sometimes it becomes very difficult uh, logistically to figure out what is a fair way to ultimately uh, make a wrong right. I would uh, agree with everything my colleagues have said and, and, and also go further to say just it's extremely difficult to make peace with the past and I think it also depends on where you are. I think as Americans, honestly, I think we have a little bit of difficulty um, and just coming right out and saying that we're sorry. Perhaps it's our fear of litigation that we know when you say you're sorry for something, it opens up the door to possibilities of, of you know, compensation for whatever it could be, whether it was for uh, the Native Americans, for Japanese Americans with an internment, for African Americans with slavery, a whole myriad of, of things. And, and I think my colleagues that mentioned other countries were, were right, correct in, to do so, because if you look at other places, particularly in African states, um, and not just in African states, also in, in Australia. I can start with Australia for an example. Last year, the Prime Minister of Australia, uh, Kevin Rudd, made a, an official government apology for the government's mistreatment of, of Aboriginal natives. And um, in the media write-up after that, a lot of people were that people it was met with cheers throughout the country. People were really really happy about it. Um, it was met with some kind of skepticism by others who said that you know, that, you know this is it. One one quote from. Um, like from the, the, from the parliamentary motion that was passed, because it was passed within Parliament, for the indignity and degradation thus inflicted on a proud people and a proud culture, we say sorry. The response for an, from an Aboriginal leader, though, was to say, black fellows will get the words, the white fellows keep the money. So um, while I think an apology in that case did, did go far for many, um, and make people feel that at least their their um, historical pain and suffering was heard. Um, sometimes it's not always enough. Other places have gone um, have tried to take a, a different approach, as, as Jim mentioned, uh, the notion of truth and reconciliation, and that was done with mixed effect, but pretty positive effect in South Africa. For those of you who know a bit about South Africa, South Africa was under the apartheid regime for almost, uh, almost 50 years, 40 some years, uh, which was a system of racial segregation, not unlike that of here in the United States, um, in which people were divided completely in every single area. 
um, it was a, raci- a system of racial injustice. And then in 1994, when apar- the apartheid laws were brought down and Nelson Mandela became the first, president, first black president of South Africa, what he did was amazing. He didn't say to the Afrikaners who had ruled, that was the white minority tribe who had ruled South Africa for years, he didn't say, we want you to get out, we're going to take over and you know, we're going to do to you what you did to us. He said, we cannot move forward unless we move forward together. So don't leave, stay here. And he built this coalition government that consisted of communists and Zulus and this group and that group and everybody kind of coming together under this, this rainbow coalition of sorts and then established the Truth and Reconciliation Commission which would allow people, let's say for example uh, this lady here was a, system, was a, um, a victim of, of you were beaten by the police or something and you sir might be the police officer who did it. If you were willing to do so the two of you would come forward before the commission and tell your stories and what would happen, the fate would be determined up to the commission but would allow you to, to both tell your stories, perhaps you ask for forgiveness and atonement from the, the person that you um, uh, slighted or hurt um, and in some cases it, it had a, a dramatic effect where people, sometimes it's a question of people feeling they've, they, they've been heard. Um, that may not always be enough and that's kind of something I think we're going to talk about as we go but for some people just the simple notion of you've heard what I've had to say, you've heard what I went through, um, makes people feel uh, a little bit better. Anybody else want to expand on that? I'd say that on the other extreme, in the Cambodian case, from the early 70s to the early 80s, Cambodia was under the rule of a a semi-Marxist group known as the Khmer Rouge, and their leader, Pol Pot, um, attempted to re-educate the country and that led, if any of you have ever seen it, it's an older movie now called The Killing Fields, called something, they coined a new term, autogenocide, the selective annihilation of your own people. Um, and now that the, the Khmer Rouge collapsed in the 1980s and through the 90s and even now their commissions, they're hunting Khmer Rouge, they're trying to bring them to justice under the new Cambodian court system, but they are they are giving both the accused and the accuser at least a voice in court because they want to be very sure that they don't if now the, the majority of the population who are victimized in some way by the, by the concentration camps set up by the Khmer Rouge if they turn around and persecute the persecutors, then how different are they? If you if you turn around and say okay well now we're going to put you all in prison camps and concentration camps how different are you than the the group you've overturned and so they're they're trying to bring them to justice whatever that term can imply which I think is a lot of things um, but they're trying to to do so by being fair and objective and, and kind of trying to skirt that emotive justice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which we all want but maybe isn't the best thing for the future. I thought of another example if I can. A country that's kind of going along with what Jim said that's also kind of taken the opposite approach is Russia. Um, When I teach in in the world since 1945 about the gulag camps, which were basically concentration camps in which you could go to jail for jaywalking, for being late to work one too many times under the Stalin regime, um, to, you know, uttering anything against the government, and you'd spend years of hard labor if you made it out alive probably working in some mine in Siberia or something and that's a country in which they've had very a lot of difficulty in making peace with their past they haven't wanted to acknowledge it um, the former president of Russia current prime minister is a guy by the name of Vladimir Putin and Vladimir Putin's uh, take on on the past is that history should be positive 
You know, we shouldn't, let's not focus on those bad things like gulag camps and things like that. Let's just talk about the positive things in history. And they've allowed these gulag camps to kind of disappear. Um, and I had the opportunity to visit one of them, and it's one of the only ones still in Russia in a, uh, a city called Perm, which is where Europe basically meets Asia. And they've taken great pains without any kind of government compensation to keep this, this camp uh, alive, to tell people, educate people as to what happened. And, and that most of the younger generation know very little about it. And at one point in time in Russia, one in six people, one in six men in particular, were in a gulag camp. One in six people a lot of people to spend time in a gulag camp. So that's an, an example of the opposite extreme where um, they have not really wanted to make any peace, where people may want it, but the government um, is not really ready to kind of open up that can of worms that one of my colleagues uh, uh, mentioned before. Does anyone else want to comment? Well, I'd just be interested in hearing what maybe people in the audience think about this, because when we were debating amongst ourselves, we... we we were having a hard time coming to a consensus with the way that the this event was framed. You know, what do you do about events that were over a hundred years ago, where all the victims are no longer with us, mm -hmm. all the perpetrators are no longer with us? You know, and, and specifically, we were talking about uh, slavery uh, reparations. You know, now we're talking about well over a hundred years ago. What do you do in these circumstances? Who do you reward? Who do you punish? Um, there's clear. You know, we were trying to talk. You know, we were giving our own examples. If for, for whatever reason, if, if I trace my family history and turns out my great-great-grandfather um, had a plantation and had slave labor and developed wealth because of this, passed this on to his ancestors, which may have came to me in the form of inheritance, and I benefited directly, mm -hmm. do I owe somebody this in some sort of compensation for the wealth that I accrued because of past wrongs? Who would I pay this to? Would we, you know, how would you trace through people's family histories to see uh, who were the slaves on my particular plantation? And I'm just giving this as one example where it, 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 we, you get into um, difficulties of trying to trace through who the perpetrators are and, and who are the victims, especially when your generation's removed. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you're dealing with current situations, I think it's a much more tangible way that you can address this, and you guys have already provided a lot of examples. But if anybody has a particular situation that y you would like us to consider or that you would like to consider for yourself, we'd be happy to hear it. Sergio. Uh, So the question is, how do you make peace with the current Israeli-Palestinian? So are you asking, can I ask you to kind of be a little bit more specific, are you asking for um, how do Israelis and Palestinians make peace with their past, or how do we deal with, with uh, as Professor Neversel mentioned, about the notion of, of reparations, the notion of financial compensation, or can you be a little bit more specific about what you mean? Both. 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 Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'd think that first you'd have to make peace before you can start. I, I, I mean, it does, I'm not trying to sound trite. I'm really not. But I think you first have to make peace and then have a sort of airing out period where tensions actually ramp down for, say, a decade before then you can start to even establish a commission that will look at reconciliation and what that means. Does that make sense? Because if, if you start and say, if, if, if somehow we actually manage to negotiate a roadmap and get it to work, then six months into that process, 
what do you, what would the effect be of trying to find a reconciliatory product? I think that would just derail everything. So I think that the first step would honestly be just to have a, a, a piece that lasts and gets some some credibility behind it, mm -hmm. then to then to look at you know what does reconciliation mean? What would what would aggrieved parties on both sides consider to be a just leveling? To, to and then be able to move forward from there. Um, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, to start off with, I think, first of all, if neither side's talking to one another, it's kind of difficult to do that. I think also it's a question of generations. And in the case, for, in particular for, for Israel, and I always tell my students that as long as you still have this generation that survived the Holocaust, that survived the idea of not having a state, um, the, this feeling of insecurity, it's going to be very, very difficult, I think, for them to make peace with the past and kind of move, move forward. Uh, and the same also exists for Palestinians. You've got a generation, you've, the, the generation of Palestinians who, were, um, who are no longer living on the land they once lived on and are living elsewhere. I, I, ha I think it's one of those questions of, of time. Time is, the, and I know it sounds again. It's just, it's just I don't, I don't want to sound trite either to be dismissive. It's a question of I think that you do need time to kind of work this out through the generations. Um, mm -hmm. I'll be curious to see when both sides perhaps, and for the Palestinians, that may not happen until they have their own state, their <coughs> own nation state, their own borders, their own sovereignty. But for the case of Israelis, until I think maybe there's a sense of comfort in where they stand as a nation, as long as they feel threatened. I don't think they're going to be interested in having too many uh, talks of reconciliation and peace, and because when that's happened in the past, it hasn't always turned out too well. Um, when Israel and Palestine came the closest to a peace deal in 1993, shortly thereafter, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated um, by an Israeli extremist, not by not by an Arab extremist who was looking to derail the peace process. So I, I think it's a it's a really good question. I think it's very difficult, and again, I would say I think that it, it is a question of time and a question of. For the, for the Palestinians, a sense of having legitimacy as a state, for the Israelis, having a sense of security. Now, how that can happen, it's not up for me to, to determine, but uh, it's, uh, I'll, I'll be curious to see how it plays out. <laughs> Anybody else want to jump in on that one, or do you want to talk about something else? That was a good question, and I, I wish I wouldn't have asked that, the question that I initially posed, because I can't think of a, uh, a harder example to, to really <laughs> address than the one that you just raised. Um, but if I could throw in a, since many of my students are in this audience, if I could throw in a course concept or theory, uh, constructivism, and I, I think Professor Cobb mentioned this earlier, first you'd have to agree on the past. Mm -hmm. I'm not an expert in, in, in Middle East history, but I've attended events, I've, I've done a little bit of research, and I've, I've seen points of view from, from some experts on, on both sides where they cannot come to a consensus, an agreement on specific historical circumstances and situations. Um, there's there's large-scale disagreements, so it's very difficult to come to grips with how you uh, address these the, the past if you can't even agree upon the past. Um, and I think you brought up a great example with the Holocaust, and I think that there, this, this is obviously a huge uh, situation um, or influ influencing factor on, on Israel's actions, but you know, there's even Israelis who have said, you know, you can't use the past atrocity to, in any way, forgive um, inhumane or injustice treatment in present society. So, um, you know, I don't think I, I addressed your question very specifically, but other than in trying to come to grips with the past and agreeing on what 
what and why things happened the way they did, I think it'd be very difficult. Does anyone have other examples that there are other questions like to throw out? Yes. Um, okay. Do you guys think, even with this situation or others, that when there's no present parties at hand, that like what? You know, I mean, you mentioned like financial operation things like that. Aren't those things kind of unnecessary as the people responsible aren't even alive anymore? And so when you take in the kind of context of modern <coughs> circumstances, don't you guys think that, okay, there could be a formal apology for the past, but I've seen in a lot of these situations that there's so much focus on the past, you lose track of the present. You try to define the present by saying, well, we did this before. And that that's some kind of excuse, which you kind of alluded to just now. So how do you kind of balance that mm -hmm. out, like that struggle between realizing and working on the present versus the past? So the question uh, that this gentleman posed was, um, if there are no present parties, you know, alive or able to speak for themselves, in other words, um, you know, how is isn't financial compensation some, somewhat unnecessary if there if you really can't get get it from from straight from the people that survived? Is that what you're asking? Well, and even broader, like, how do you address the battle between accepting working on the present versus kind of using the past as this kind of excuse? Okay. Like, a, a lot of countries are like, oh, well, you did this, so, like, 100 years ago, so we're doing this now. Right. And uh, they kind of use that as this kind of way to explain what they're doing instead of just saying, well, we're doing this now, because, you know, you see what I'm saying? I do, yeah. I do. Yeah. Um, somebody else want to? Well, Can you maybe readdress some of the last things he just said, too, if it's okay? Do you remember? What? It was about, about um, how do you uh, work on... on the, the the present and the future if you're still kind of mired in the past I think is that, is that kind of a, a good way to yeah. I, with the example I gave earlier I I still you know we we came to an agreement I think amongst our group before here today that it's very difficult to to give specific compensation to people who weren't specifically aggrieved directly right However, with the example I gave, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that my own position uh, and many others would not be the same with, without the historical circumstances that came uh, before me, you know, uh, with all the, um, you know, atrocities that happened to Native Americans, uh, you know, African American slaves. Um, you know, there's, there's been horrible injustices. Now, we can't hold the people directly responsible today. And we perhaps we can't give direct financial assistance to assistance to people who weren't directly harmed, but you can't ignore the, his, the the generational effects from those past historical circumstances, in my opinion. So that's why, and we we've been on panels before trying to address current inequalities in America or current inequalities in the world, and you can't ignore those historical circumstances that have led to some of the huge inequalities that we see today amongst. People who have faced, you know, their 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 ancestors have faced historical uh, situations that we've been discussing. So, in some ways, I you know, whether it's a particular type of affirmative action program or whether it's um, some sort of uh, hiring programs that take into consideration when all other things are are equal, giving um, benefits or uh, 
to, to people who have been historically aggrieved. I think there has to be some sort of governmental uh, programs to try to make up going forward for people who have experienced inequalities or historical uh, discrimination in the past. That's my belief. It's very difficult. I, don't, I think you're going to, we were talking about this amongst ourselves, you know, I remember as a little kid that the times I'd get most upset is when my brother would do something or my friend would do something and I would be the one to get the blame. And so if, if you were truly giving out monetary compensation today and that would mean other people would be being penalized, right, if this is coming from the government's uh, financially stretched resources as they are, to be giving the people who weren't directly harmed, you might feel aggrieved, right, that this is how I didn't do this. Why am I having to pay the, the cost for this? However, you can't be, you know, historically blind to what happened either and not trying to try to say, how can we go forward to try to improve equality or improve um, people's situations? Yeah, and, I, and I would just add that I think Professor Navratil is absolutely right. I mean, reflection is, is, is wonderful. Uh, we have to examine the past uh, in order to see what we've done well and what's worthy of preservation, and also in order to see what we've done poorly and, and, and in some cases, uh, horrific injustices that have occurred, and what can we do going forward to ensure that those things don't happen again. Um, however, we have an obligation in this democratic society to try and be as fair as we can possibly be to everyone and so the problem that I think that you run into with the, the idea of reparations it particularly in terms of how would you implement it is that I think ultimately rather than being it mires us in the past to some extent I think and I think it's dangerous to get bogged down because at some point we have to say as a society what has happened in the past uh, particularly with regard to slavery, segregation, etc., is absolutely fundamentally uh, a human rights tragedy that has occurred in our country. And we need to be vigilant to see that, th th that this kind of thing never happens again to, to any race, religion, ethnic group, sexual orientation, so on and so forth. But I think that there is a... a there's all, you, know, you open up a can of worms, I suppose, to some degree, when you start digging into the past and bringing it into the present in an attempt to create policy in the present. You know what I'm saying, Professor Navratil? Uh, because, because there is, at some point, I mean, it, it, first of all, you know, what is the, the first thing that I thought about when we met and had this discussion is, pragmatically, what is the reaction going to be the first time that somebody feels like money has come out of their pocket to address something that they feel that they hold no personal responsibility for? And I don't know exactly what the reaction would be, but it's probably not going to be very positive. And so the question that I have is, do we then create an environment that sets, that sets back uh, uh, you know, a lot of the progress that's been made over the past decades uh, in terms of uh, essentially uh, ripping the scab off of a wound rather than allowing it to heal. And to, to add to that from the other side, I mean, how much, how much financial recompense or is there ever enough? You know, if you work out, like, so if you throw out some grandiose number, but then you calculate it to, like, every family gets $100, oh, so then you also have people going, well, my, my ancestor's suffering is worth 100 bucks. You know, I mean, will that, 
And I think maybe it's a sign of the society we look at. Does money actually heal? Maybe that's a question we should also ask. You know, that's a good question. <laughs> would, will money fix everything? Yeah. Um, and and hey. <laughs> one last comment, and then, and then I'll, I'll give the mic to, to Professor Navratil. Um, there's actually millions of dollars sitting in government trusts that Native American groups will not claim for lands that the government took from them because they refuse to even recognize that the, the treaty was legal, that it was negotiated in any kind of good faith. So you have another, you know, maybe it's also a cultural thing where money doesn't necessarily buy justice. Money does not create reconciliation because they're saying, hey, look, if we take your money, that's admitting that on some level we accept this negotiation and we refuse to might benefit them in certain ways, but they, they would rather have their pride or their um, self-esteem than the money. So then where do you find justice? Mm -hmm. well, two, two things, and I was hoping maybe we could, you know, with the, this is part of One Book, One College uh, event, and um, Jim, I think, wanted to, Professor McIntyre wanted to tell us a little bit about um, you know, you know the situation described in the book, but okay. Well, <laughs> it, it, there was experimental research done on Henrietta Lacks. Um, the scientific community uh, in general and St. John's University in particular benefited enormously from this, and maybe some of us in this room have benefited from this. There's, you know, there's been uh, all kinds of pharmaceutical research, cancer uh, drugs. Um, uh, AIDS drugs, immunizations, um, the polio vaccine, I mean, all kinds of things have, have developed from this. If I benefited directly from this, and you hear her story of, of her, f so this occurred in the 50s, yeah. 1950s? Okay. Let me do. Um, the, the context, Henrietta Lacks uh, went to the African-American ward at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, which was a free ward. And she, um, well, she was diagnosed with cervical cancer, which eventually killed her, uh, which was not uncommon in the early 50s. As part of the diagnostic process, a lot of this ends up being kind of by happenstance, which makes it even more difficult to assert blame. Or, you know, because, okay, uh, cell samples taken. Johns Hopkins is also a research institution. If there are some cells left over from the diagnostic process, is it wrong to give them to a doctor who's trying to grow cell cultures. So far he hasn't succeeded and as it turned out Henrietta Lacks cells were the first one he managed to, to keep alive and they're still growing all over the world. Um, and out of those cell cultures numerous drugs, I mean basically this was the first time that you could test potential vaccines, test the effect of drugs on humans without testing them on human beings. You could test them on human <coughs> cells. So imagine like the sock vaccine, which most of us have received for polio, um, numerous cancer drugs and treatments, numerous AIDS drugs and treatments were all tested out this way, and yet her family can't get health care. And that's, that's kind of the social justice issue that the book raises.
And mm-hmm. so she said, it's okay for you to use myself. Now, whether she actually understood what she was signing, whether any of us actually understand what we sign mm-hmm. when we go to the hospital or we go in for health care, that's one piece, certainly. But the other <coughs> thing that I think makes it interesting here is that that still is the accepted practice. So mm-hmm. knowing this happened and, and the feelings many of us have about it as being unfair and being, uh, you know, un- an unjust situation, it is still the current situation in a medical situation. Mm-hmm. If you go now, to the, uh, just go have a biopsy of some cells, have some questionable or actual cancer removed, whatever they don't need for your treatment goes into some big bin that some scientist is trying to do something for still. So that's, it's not even like some of the things that we said where we, we've already accepted slavery is wrong mm-hmm. and moved on. Right. There is no slavery. And this is a current practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are some of the rest of you think about that? Do you have a problem with your cells being used for scientific research? I to hear some. Feel that you're owed something if yeah. If they right. Right. The scientist uh, invents a cure for AIDS uh, based on 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 your cells that were cell samples. Do you do you deserve some type of compensation for it? What do you think? Ah, come on, don't be shy. Thank, thank you, sir. So no, because it's good for humanity. That was the response. You know, <coughs> yes. um, well, I mean, legally speaking, no, of course. But in future contracts like that, you can even put in the clause that there be some kind of compensation if something lucrative is formed from. <laughs> okay. You know, just just because you know, because there's a huge potential for that. Um, but even so, like. So you're saying to put in a future contract, a contract yeah, that you're saying, saying that if something lucrative comes out of it, then that person should receive compensation. Yeah, potentially, but also, I mean, reasonably speaking, they should get some compensation just out of good faith. So reasonably speaking, they should get some kind of compensation out of good faith. Panel, any, any, any uh, thoughts on that? On that notion? I guess I could say personally, I, I agree with the gentleman there, just only speaking for myself. If I know it's going gonna, it's gonna to go for the betterment of humanity, I mean, um, wasn't it the uh, Jonas Salk never, didn't he make his, the polio vaccine public? He never got a lot of compensation for it because he felt that, that something like that belonged to humanity and not necessarily to a pharmaceutical company. Um, you know, yes? Benjamin Franklin as well, patented it, yeah. So, I mean, so we've, got, we've got some examples of others who, scientists who just wanted their work to be for the, the greater betterment of humanity. Um, so does that mean if you, you know, for the rest of you, sorry, oh well. <laughs> if, you don't, if, you're not, if you're not interested in the betterment of humanity, then uh, too bad for you? No, I, I, would do, I, I would go on record of saying if, if somebody profited billions of dollars for myself mm-hmm. and my own children were hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and didn't have medical care, as some of the examples of Henrietta Lacks' five kids, I would have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there should be, you know, and that's what the events we're trying to discuss. But if if you can hold people who directly benefited responsible, I think they do they do have some sort of moral obligation to provide compensation for, you know, granted they hit the jackpot and they did it maybe because <coughs> of their own ingenuity, but they couldn't have done it without yourselves. Um, and I, yeah, there's a comment in the back. Yeah, question back. So that they did all the work and they besides give yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so therefore, point. then you, you. Pardon me? Go ahead. 
It would be, it would be a difference. It could be the difference. Yes, ma'am. Did everybody hear that? Do I need to repeat that? Or that not, not everything is about money. That so that's why you have a career. That's why we're in college. You have a lot of money. So buy, if you want a purse, buy it yourself as your... Uh, yeah, <laughs> okay. I, I love I love those comments, and I think you're right. Uh, and I think that that shows a certain ethical component of individuals thinking. But why, where does that reasoning stop then for corporations? Why too don't they have? Uh, but why, why? But they're made up of individuals. These are people who make decisions on their board. Why should they be able to collect billion, if money isn't everything? Why? Why should they have unlimited capacity for making billions of dollars off of somebody's cells and not have any obligation to maybe make a little bit of you know like for for human progress? Like we've been saying, we're, we're willing to do it individually. Then why aren't they? Where is that double standard? It seems to be a double standard. Do you see it as such? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Jack, you want to make? Oh, yeah. Skyler. So because the company has others to support within the, within the company that make up the company, therefore it justifies it, you think? So it's almost like eminent domain of cells is what you think. Like it's the notion of that if it's for, <laughs> for the betterment of society, that you know that so the gov- that the, this company in particular should be able to. I think it's, di- it's different. Like if, if you're if they're using a cure cancer name, something like that, that's completely different. They're like actually like your cells are rare and they're like selling them on the black market. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, yes, ma'am. Okay, so the company should perhaps should have. The company could have provided you with the job. Like, mm-hmm. you guys are looking at it like, oh, why should you buy the company? Like, blah, blah, blah. The company could have given you that job in the first place just so you could get health insurance. Given who the job? Now, you mean in this case. The individual themselves are being used. Okay, but if they didn't know at the time until much, much, much later that their cells were being used, then what? Okay, okay. Okay, you know, there's an, another because I think this goes back to what it's a good, it's a good, it's a good question. Yeah, did you have something you wanted to say or? Oh. Um, oh, we have another question. Yeah, Scott. 
<laughs> Read well, the fine print. But that brings up another question. What if you, first off, most of us, if we go to an emergency room, whether it's ourselves or a loved one, we're really not. I mean, I, I have three kids, and if, when we've been to the emergency room, I'm really not in my most objective state of mind. You know, and we're also dealing, especially in Henrietta Lack's case, with someone who is only nominally literate. So, what do you do if the person who read, quote unquote, read the document, mm -hmm. really doesn't understand what they're reading or signing? Mm -hmm. And what choice do you have? Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's it's not you like you could look no at the sign, document. No treatment. Yeah, you can't say stri let's strike this line out, let's strike that line out, <laughs> yeah. let's add this language right. here, then I'll yeah. sign it. You know, they don't they don't, they don't edit have a line it. Line item veto. Yeah, you don't have a line item veto, unfortunately. <laughs> so you're kind it's kind of uh, you sign it or you you know you're back out on the sidewalk. Yeah. Yes, sir. Why can't the person say the last part again? So I can the person who gave the cells could have even just done more than the various people like on a board or at some level mm -hmm. of the company. Like they mm -hmm. could have just done nothing, just got a bonus from or something. Billions mm -hmm. are being made. So you're saying it, it's, it, this is another way that, that we're taking advantage of a person who really can't, in this case of Henrietta Lacks, who couldn't help her circumstances and that, and that um, if you don't have that opportunity to, that, that you're, you're at a disadvantage to, to be able to better yourself already from the get-go. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Okay. Let's let's say just for the hypothetical for purposes of argument, what if Henrietta Lacks had been a millionaire? Would the conversation be any different? Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, she even if she were a millionaire, she would still have the same right to her. Did you all hear that? Do you need me to repeat that or did everybody get that? But then there's another precedent that's, that, that they've set up over the years where, as an individual, you can't patent your cell line. You can't say this is... But Eli Lilly can. A drug company can patent and say, we own this cell. So if the cells you give for the betterment of society are taken over by a drug company and they find, hey, wow, this is the jackpot, they can patent it so that no one else... Everybody else has to pay to play. Not that we know what that means in Chicago. <laughs> um. it, it, it's a really slippery slope, too. And I, I, I keep, maybe I'm naive, but I keep going back to the idea of an apology can make a difference. 
sometimes a simple apology makes a difference. And, and if my colleagues will forgive me for sharing a story, a very brief story, not about me, but a close relative of mine uh, had a tubal ligation after a pregnancy and six months later became pregnant. And it was like one of those one in a million things that happened. And, and uh, the relative, was, she was speaking with the doctor and uh, they went back and forth. And, and, and the doctor finally said, you know what, I'm sorry. I, I did the best I could. Uh, in the circumstance and my relative was, said you know that made a big difference just to hear someone say and normally a doctor is so frightened about being sued that you're not going to hear he or she, you're not going to hear he or she saying something like that because of the fear that someone will therefore take it as an admission of guilt and therefore sue them but I think that we as humans sometimes just a person acknowledging your pain makes a difference and if I can share one more example this time of a, a, an international example um, in Japan after World War II, the Japanese government had, has had some difficulties in making peace with its past. And uh, a, a group of, of Korean women who were held as sex slaves during World War II to basically service the Japanese army uh, during World War II were receiving kind of financial compensation, but the Japanese government was calling it aid. They wouldn't call it a formal apology because they were having a great difficulty in just calling it an apology. Um, the whole notion of honor and the admission of guilt and these women were saying, this is not enough. We don't care about your money. Your money, going, addressing Professor McIntyre's question, money's not going to fix this. We want to hear you say, we were wrong. You were wrong, and we were wronged in the process, and that you're sorry. And finally, the government did, did make an apology. Um, so again, I, again, maybe that's my own naivete here, but I, I sometimes think that an apology can go a long way. And the U.S. government has given kind of half-hearted apologies for slavery but has never really come out and said you know what what we did was reprehensible no they've said it's reprehensible it's bad but they've never come out with an official apology the senate recently is i think uh, um, last year approved a resolution and saying calling for it but you haven't really ever heard a, a president of the united states saying what we did was unequivocally hundred percent terribly wrong with japanese americans who were held in internment camps they did make that apology, and maybe that also goes back to what Professor Nevertil said earlier about, our, or I think it was Professor Nevertil, about people being alive to, to be there for the apology and get, and get the compensation. So I don't know. I, I'd be curious to hear what my, what my colleagues say or what some of you think. Is an apology sometimes enough? What do you think? Maybe some of my students who were talking about money earlier might nibble on this one. If somebody steals something from you, do you want them to apologize? Or do you want your money back or your possessions back? <laughs> you want an apology and you want your possessions back? What if you can't get your, there's no way you can get your possessions back at all? There's just... Get a gun. Get a gun. <laughs> Pardon me? He's going to work for you? <laughs> is, an apology, is an apology ever enough? Yes. Um, it completely depends on how it's phrased. Because it depends on how it's phrased, okay. Because, okay. I mean, I know of circumstances where I've received an apology and it just seemed like it was kind of... Hollow? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, hollow, not substantial in any way. And that can even make the situation worse. Mm -hmm. And you even mentioned, and like people mentioned, like, um, kind of like opening a wound that was already, you know, healed. Mm -hmm. Like, and it can kind of just make things worse and escalate things. So if it's a, if it's a half-hearted and not a very good apology, it can sometimes make things even worse. Yeah, if it's okay. Like a genuine, kind of sincere and well thought out, and like was significant. I, 
Okay. So it might it might please the majority if it seems like it's a sincere enough apology and is is uh, okay. And it's so subjective. Yeah, it <laughs> it's just so as you allude to, you know, what sixty percent of the people are happy with the apology, you know, twenty five aren't and fifteen don't know. Well, is that a net plus minus? You know, where are we at then? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's an interesting slippery slope. Yes, question back there. Okay, so it depends on the situation. Okay. And the gentleman beside you also had a, a question or comment, I believe. So it depends on the, on the person who's making the apology and the person who's being apologized to. I think that's that's acceptable. Um, other comments on that, or do you want me to? I can always I, I can always ramble about something, but I go ahead, Skyler. Yeah, personal apologies and you know a, a, a pol a, an apology coming from a government it's kind of apples and oranges really I still th I, I'm still going I don't know if I'm the only one on this that's fine I'll play devil's advocate but I still think the stealing has consequences that last a while and I understand the you know I like your example of the candy bar and, and, and how that's different but you know with the Jap the internment of the Japanese there was I think reparations of approximately twenty thousand dollars per person who was interned during World War two it may have been because well you lose your business maybe you're a business owner and you are jailed for a significant time period that business you know goes underneath water and you lose that uh, financial investment so you're being repaid because something was taken from you or you lost something due to that situation mm -hmm. so you know I, again I, I think if you trace back through history these types of uh, grievances that we've been talking about have led to people being in different positions mm -hmm. I was trying to think of my example when I play Monopoly with my nephew and trying to connect this you know he cheats and then he'll apologize if I catch him, but he still owns Boardwalk and Park Place. And, you know, his apology is great, and he's sincere, and he does it so cutely, but I, he still wins the game. And I know that this situation might seem lighthearted considering what we're discussing, but I think if you, if, you, if you think about it a little bit, you can make that same type of comparison to the situations that we're making. You know, some of these historical legacies in the United States we've talked about the United States government's done a lot of great things there's been some unfortunate things that they've done too to say the least these things have had an impact on future generations so I, I, I agree I'm not trying to diminish the influence of apologies but and nor I think I said earlier do I think we should try to get reparations to people who were, were damaged who are no longer uh, living but I do think that money does I can understand why sometimes money is brought into to, into the equation. If I may, and, and I, excuse me, 
I come from a, a Greek background, and for 400 years, the Ottoman Turks occupied Greece. Now, does that mean that I say that because at some point in time I've got black hair and, and brown eyes, and originally the original Greeks were blonde hair and blue eyes, so chances are somewhere, somewhere along the way, my relatives had some kind of contact with the Ottoman Turks? Okay, so does that mean that I'm, uh, because of perhaps my family was left, because my family, when they left Greece, were about as poor as they come? Literally, the old joke about all I have is the shirt on my back and you know, that kind of thing. Does that mean that if my, if my family suffered due to being under Ottoman Turkish rule or therefore for poor or, or in dire circumstances as a result of it, am I owed something? I guess at a certain point in time, I, I have to go back to what the young lady in the back said too, that at a certain point in time, you have to, however that is, try to come to, to peace with things as best as you can. When you, when you hold things inside of you and you keep bitterness inside of you, you expend so much energy keeping that bitterness inside of you that it doesn't allow you to move on. And, and maybe that's easy for me to say because I've, I've lived a very comfortable life. But I guess at a certain point in time, I just think that where does it stop then? Where is that slippery slope? It's a slippery slope. Where does it end in terms of who gets what for financial compensations? And, you know, then everyone's going to claim that at some point in time, this person, you know, 200 years ago, my ancestors were treated this way by the Russians or, you know, this, and, and where, where does it stop? And I think too, maybe there's maybe there's a sort of continuum. The longer the time, the more an apology means, because mm -hmm. there's point. there's the other example too. In, in 2000, then Pope John Paul II visited <coughs> Athens, and you probably remember. Mm -hmm. And the and the Greek press was not very positive, uh, because there have been issues between the the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church going back to well, mainly the Fourth Crusade when the Crusaders destroyed Constantinople. Oops. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Awkward moment. But and, and the but the first thing that the Pope did getting off the plane was to formally apologize for something that happened in 1204. Mm -hmm. And the turnaround in the press was remarkable. All of a sudden, I mean, there was debate in, in Athens whether the patriarch was even going to meet the Pope, was just going to snub him. And, and finally they decided we'll be big about it, the patriarch being one of the leaders of the Eastern Orthodox or Greek Orthodox Church. Well, we'll be big about it and kind of show that we can be better than, than the Pope. And, and then this apology, oh, he's a great guy, you know. And, but again, you know, that's 800 years later. Right. Um, a, a mere apology, in, in that sense, can have a profound effect, whereas I think the closer, where, and when you do have people, in the case of Japanese internment, you had survivors still living mm -hmm. and who could testify, well, my father's business was worth this, and now it's gone as a result of internment. So may maybe there is a sort of temporal dimension to this mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <coughs> yes. um, I think that it's kind of a double-edged sword because uh, at one end you can suggest, oh, well, there should be some element of specificity in terms of what's going on. If this specific family was enslaved, you know, the hundreds and so on, you know, at the release of things, they didn't have the means to actually build themselves up again because right. they were so discouraged. Mm -hmm. So maybe the future, there's plenty of generations now that I'm sure are affected by things like that in the past. That never have, has even the means to necessarily build themselves up, you know, financially and so on. But at the same time, realistically speaking, there can't any ever be any substantial conversation or something like that. So sometimes, realistically speaking, an apology is all you can Okay, so you're saying that once again that financial compensation just is not gonna may not be enough because no money's ever enough for sometimes the pain that people go through and the, the suffering. Is that is that am I? Well, I think some it, it could be, but I think it's 
could be, and I think there definitely should be some in some cases. But again, there's a element some financial compensation yeah. in some in some cases. But there should always be an element of like, so like who did what when. Except the reality is these things are very difficult to trade. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult. Going back to what Professor McIntyre said, it's it's, it's very difficult to trace yeah, that. So even like my teacher said at the beginning, like it completely has to do with the circumstances. But what if you can't even identify them? Mm-hmm. What can you do? Mm-hmm. 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 Are we? Let's see. Anymore? Yeah. Questions. Yeah, are there any more? Because we're running a little bit low on time. Are there any more questions or even case studies you want to throw out there or just thoughts in general on the notion of apology and the notion of if, um, what are the limits of compensation and anything else? Any, any other comments by the panel you'd like to throw out there? I think we. So thank you very much, everybody, for coming today. And and your questions were great. Comments were terrific. And uh, we appreciate your attendance. Keep coming to the library. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.